You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Galatians 4, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And, Father, we do recognize the density of this passage. And, Father, we look to you for help. But even if the passage was clear, Father, uh, on a surface, we would still look to you for help, Lord. For we know, O Father, that apart from you, we can do no thing that is eternally beneficial to ourselves. So, Father, we look to you and we pray that you would be pleased to bless us this morning with understanding and align our hearts with the truth that you have put in these verses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Now, in, in verse 21, Paul asks a question. He says, tell me you desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? And... To understand this question, we need to first of all understand that Paul's using the word law in two different ways here. And I think, as I was thinking about how to explain this particular sentence, I think the best way to do is to paraphrase it and to kind of maybe work through a couple versions of the paraphrase. And each time we do it, it's going to be kind of like the lenses when you're at the eye doctor. You know, they can hopefully will continue to become clearer and clearer as he switches them around for us. Um, Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. What Paul's saying there is uh, basically, listen, listen, everyone, you who desire to add law keeping to your faith in Jesus for justification um, is what he's meaning by this first thing. And we've seen that over and over again, haven't we? I mean, at one point, I've kind of found myself saying exactly the same thing over and over and over again. And I thought to myself, my goodness, I keep saying the same thing over and over again. And I look back at the text. Well, guess what? Why? It's because Paul keeps saying the same thing over and over again, that justification. And mind you, we're talking about justification. That is, we're talking about being able to stand in God's presence. We're not talking about growth and grace. We're not talking about what we call sanctification. We're not talking about that yet. We're going to get to that. We're talking about justification. In other words, we're talking about how we initially get right with God. And Paul's making it really clear we do that by faith in Christ, that he's brought everything. He he gets us 100% of the way there. And what Paul is saying to his to his readers, what he's saying to the Galatians, he said, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Those of you who desire to add 
to faith in Christ, to add your law-keeping to faith in Christ, have you bothered to listen to what the law says? Now, I think already, when I paraphrase it that way, you're already starting to say, well, law has a different meaning there. If you haven't, let me, let me try again. Let's move the lenses one more time. Okay, those of you who desire to add law-keeping to your faith in Christ for justification, have you bothered to read your Bibles? You can see how law is being used in that second sense as the Word of God. Now, we can, become, we can become a little bit more specific with this, in fact, much more specific. And let's remember that in Paul's day, there was no New Testament. Everyone's running around with a Hebrew Bible, which is the equivalent of our Old Testament, right? And uh, we could put it this way. Paul says, okay, those of you who want to add law-keeping to your justification, or law-keeping to your faith in Christ for justification, have you bothered to read the Torah? Have you bothered to listen to what the Torah says? Let's do it again. Let's flip the lenses one more time. Now I think it'll become really clear. Have you bothered to read the first couple of books of the Bible? Those of you who want to add law-keeping to your faith in Christ for justification, have you bothered to read Genesis? Does that sound clear now? Then we say, okay, there's the one. That's the clearest, I hope. And then notice what Paul does next. He says, for it is written. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about what's written in the Word of God. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. Now, some of you who are familiar with Genesis say, yeah, I know, I, I read that story. Where does it come from? Genesis 16 through 21. So this, this is what Paul's saying. Listen, all of you who, who want to add law-keeping to your faith in Christ for justification, have you read Genesis 16 through 21? Have you listened to it? Have you listened to what it says? Okay, well, what does it say? Well, before we get to Genesis 16 through 21, let's think about the context of Genesis 16 through 21, which we've been over a number of times through the course of this study. You go back to Genesis 12, and what do we find? We find God calling Abraham to leave his home country, to leave his homeland, right? And God's given promises to Abraham. He's telling Abraham, listen, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and all of the people that bless you, I'm going to bless. All the people that curse you, I'm going to curse. And through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth, and I'm going to give you land. And he gives these initial promises to Abraham. What's Abraham do? He goes. He leaves. Now, we know that Abraham's 75 years old when he leaves, and we know that his wife Sarah is 10 years behind him. Now, not exactly prime age for child-rearing, correct? I mean, pretty much... They're, they're basically in retirement, so to speak. Well, they, they leave, and 10 years approximately go by, and Sarah still does not have a son. So what do they do? In Genesis 16, they take matters into their own hands, don't they? Sarah goes to Abraham, and they make use of a custom, a custom that sounds bizarre to us, but this was a custom in that day. That doesn't mean it's lawful, but it does mean it was a custom. It was, it was done in the day. Um, Sarah says, Abraham, here, this, perhaps this is how God's going to make good on his promise. Why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar, marry her, and serve children through her? What's Abraham do? He does exactly that. And the outcome of that union is Ishmael. And we can see from the, from the Genesis testimony that Abraham believes that Ishmael's the son of the promise. 
Now, Hagar is a servant. Um, in the Greek, we might call her a doulos, which is a bond servant. We might even refer to her as a slave. Um, Paul is referring to her as a slave in this text. He says in verse 22, Galatians 4, verse 22, it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. Verse 23, but the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Now, what's Paul talking about there? A couple of different things. The flesh is being used in a multifaceted way there. One, of course, it's, there's a sinfulness to what they're doing, isn't there? Certainly, there's a sinfulness to what they're doing. But there's also a, a breach of faith in what they're doing. You know, they're taking matters into their own hands. And there's nothing miraculous about what transpires with the birth of Ishmael, is there? You know, um, nothing. It's just simply fleshly. You know, we might call it fleshly. Um, in other words, it's in the arena of human possibility. It's completely in the arena of human possibility. Um, but notice, Paul says, uh, after the comma, right after flesh, he says, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, what's that all about? Uh, son of the free woman. Well, it would be many more years before, about 14 more years before Sarah would conceive and bear a son, Isaac. You know, we know from the testimony that uh, Abraham is 100 years old when Isaac is born. Now, his wife, 10 years behind him, is 90. Um, and she she bears a son, and sometimes you'll hear sometimes you'll hear sermons on these on these uh, biblical saints. You'll hear people really slamming them. Look at this breach of faith. Blah 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 blah. You know. But if you you know if you you could easily say if they just would have waited. You know if they just would have waited. That's easy for us to say. From the time that God gives Abraham the promise to the time that Sarah finally gives birth to Isaac, it's 25 years. How many of us could have waited 25 years? You know, I don't think I want to go there, quite frankly. They waited 11, um, which I think is a long time because you think about the age of the two as they're waiting. It's not like the, 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 it's not like the promise was given to them when they were their early teens, and they waited 10 years. The promise was given to them as they're already elderly. And they wait. They wait for 25 years. I think it would have been unimaginable to them. We know it was unimaginable to Abraham. We know it was unimaginable. Because as you read this, as you read the story, if you've never read the story, read the story and study the story. You know, Sarah laughs at the prospect of giving birth to a son as God visits them and says, This time next year, you're going to give, you're going to give birth, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son. So she laughs at that prospect. And Abraham says, oh, may Ishmael live. He believes Ishmael is the promise. I mean, 25 years have gone by. Now, this is, if we want to step into the area of apologetics right now, this is the place where some people who are skeptical, the scriptures will say something like this. Now, you expect me to believe that a 90-year-old not only conceived, but safely gave birth, safely underwent the rigors of giving birth to a child at the age of 90. You expect me to believe that. Yeah. Do you believe that? 
Yeah. Why do you believe that? I believe it because the Bible says so. Oh, so you're one of those that just incredulously, gullibly just believes everything you read, right? Can you hear the conversation? This is a common conversation, by the way. How do we respond to a conversation like that? When they say that's just, listen, first of all, 90-year-olds don't conceive and give birth to children. They don't do that. What do we say to that? We say exactly, you're exactly 100% right. 90-year-olds don't. And that's the point. The point of this thing is it is humanly impossible. And now I think we start to understand why God waited so long. Why does God sometimes wait so long to answer our prayers? Oh, we, you know, we speculate and we think all kinds of things, you know, just like I'm sure Abraham and, and you know, Sarah speculated, you know, why is God waiting so long? He's waiting until, I, I think one of the reasons for sure is he's waiting so long until she is so far past what's humanly possible so that they would see that the only way that this could have taken place was because God touched her. Because God done this. Because God has miraculously caused this to happen. Now, what is, what is Paul saying here? He says it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. In other words, this was completely human, humanly possible. There's nothing miraculous about this. While the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, if you look at verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, it's right here where some of us go, whoa, um, Paul, what are you doing? And if you're familiar, how many are familiar with the allegorical method of a biblical interpretation? Raise your hand if you're familiar. I already see some hands going like this. Some of them, uh, some of you are like, I know I never heard of that. Uh, if you get any um, decent volume, even an introductory, please, Troy Smell. If you get any introductory uh, work on biblical interpretation, they'll probably take you, they'll give a devoted chapter to the history of interpretation, and you're going to get at least a few paragraphs, maybe a whole chapter, about the allegorical method of biblical interpretation. And you want to read some crazy stuff. I mean, there's some crazy stuff when you start applying um, this method of allegory, if you will, to the text. In fact, it's been said over and over again that the only limits to the allegorical method of interpretation are the creativity and inventedness and imagination of the allegorical interpreter. So it's really only limited to your power of imagination. And if you've got a wild imagination, oh my goodness, fasten your seatbelt because you, I mean, and, and we have in the records of history some really crazy interpretations. So a lot of people, and, 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 the, and the one who practices this kind of thing will say, hey, look, doesn't Paul do this? Doesn't Paul, doesn't it say right here that Paul is using the uh, allegorical method of interpretation? Uh, what do we say to that? Well, the first thing that we want to be sure that we're not guilty of is reading something into the text that isn't into the text. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we don't want to take we don't want to take a modern definition of allegory and read that modern definition of allegory into this ancient text. I mean, keep in mind, Paul's writing probably around 48 A.D., just a just a few years, you know, 15 years after Jesus' crucifixion is when the, that's how early this writing is. And we don't want to take today's definition of allegory 
and read it into what Paul's doing. And if you read some good commentaries on this, uh, what Paul's doing is not the fanciful allegorical method of interpretation that we can find uh, if we read through the annuals of church history. That's not what Paul's doing here. Uh, if you read good, some decent commentaries on this, they'll start to use the word typology. They'll say what Paul's doing is he's bringing typology in. And, and you know, typology, some of us will be like, typology, what's typology? And um, that can sound really abstract in and of itself. I think it was a better way of explaining this, and I'm indebted to Frank Thielman for this. And I think we get this right away, is Paul has recognized a pattern in Scripture, a pattern. I think we all understand what a pattern is. You know, I can remember maybe the first time I ever thought of a pattern was when I was a kid, you know. Um, it was common to go and buy patterns for clothes, wasn't it? You know, this is, we are getting, we're getting older. I know we're getting older, but you used to have pattern. Mama had all these patterns. Grandma had these patterns. And, you know, some of you are looking like pattern. Yeah, you go buy these patterns and you'd make clothes and sew them together and uh, patterns, um, of course, working on cars and stuff. Sometimes you make patterns of panels you're trying to make. I mean, all of us probably have our own experiences with patterns, if you will. And what Paul's talking about here is he has identified a pattern. In verse 24, he says, this may be interpreted allegorically. In other words, I see a pattern here that I want to share with you. I want to show you a pattern. He says, these women are two covenants one is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Okay, so what's Paul saying? He's wanting to show us a pattern. According to this pattern, if you will, Hagar is kind of like the covenant that is made on Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant. Right? And she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, what kind of slavery is this? The Bible is its best interpreter. If you keep your hand right here, um, keep your hand right where we're at and just turn left to Romans. So I want you to see in Romans 9, verse 30, page 946 if you're using the church's Bible. As we're thinking about the present Jerusalem, Paul speaks to the present Jerusalem. That is the Jerusalem that's present in his day as he is ministering. He says in verse 30, what shall we say then that the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. In other words, they're taking matters into their own hands. You could already start to see the pattern here, you know, with what Sarah and Hagar, uh, or what Sarah has suggested to uh, her husband Abraham in taking, Ab uh, in taking Hagar to be his wife. They're taking the promises, and they're trying to fulfill the promises with human effort, aren't they? We can already see the pattern starting to emerge there. And Paul is talking, you know, here, the Jerusalem of his day, what are they doing? They're doing this law-keeping stuff. And now, now even though some have become to see that Jesus is the, the Savior, he is the Messiah, they're still importing this law-keeping stuff even into their gospel schematic so that they're saying that we can't get right simply by putting our faith and trust in Christ. It can't be that simple. We've got to add, sorely, we've got to do more than that. 
Throw in some circumcision, some dietary laws, then you'll probably be there. But as we've seen over and over again, where does that stop? Once you put a plus sign in front of that formula, where does it stop? The fact is it won't stop. It'll keep going until you're just buried under the law again, back in slavery. See this? It's a matter of review, but this is what we've been seeing, isn't it? And this is, this is really what our hearts like to default to. That's why this message is so important, because our hearts are always defaulting back to that law-keeping, isn't it? We have to continually keep this, and that's why it's repeated so many times over and over again. You know, and over and over, we have to hear this over and over again. Verse 24, this may be interpreted allegorically. In other words, I have a pattern here I want to show you. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children with slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. What's he talking about there? He's talking about a heavenly Jerusalem. A heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem above is free, for she is our mother, for it is written. And here we have this quote from Isaiah 54, verse 1. In case you were wondering why we read from Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3, this is why. Notice the quote, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Yeah, we kind of be able to be able to be. What is all that about? Well, there's, there's two women in here, right? Let's make it as simple as we can. We have two women here. One is barren and desolate. The other one is married and has a husband, Right? Okay, and the one who is barren and desolate is told to rejoice. Rejoice. Yeah, couples that are trying to have kids and can't have kids, I mean, telling them to rejoice, that's cruel. I think it's often cruel, isn't it? And back in the days when this is being discussed, I mean, it's one of the worst things. One of the worst things a woman could suffer would be barrenness. And it was often, she was often viewed as being under a curse. Think of Elizabeth in the New Testament. You know, when the angel goes to Zechariah and says, your, your wife's, you know, we're going to be, Christmas not that far away, we're going to be looking at those texts. We're allowed to look at them at other times too, though. It'd be okay to look at them now. Um, but we will be looking at them in, in you know, in a couple of months. Um, Elizabeth is barren, and she bore the reproach of that, didn't she? But here we're told the barren one is said to rejoice, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, who are these two women in Isaiah's text? That's been explained variously, but I'll tell you what I think the best explanation is, is it is Jerusalem in two different states of her progress. I mean, I think we're quick to say, oh, it's, it's Hagar and Sarah. There's an application there. I think there's a pattern there. But I think if we, if we, if we read the text and you read through that text, I think you'll see that a better explanation is this is Jerusalem in two various stages of her progress. What is the present Jerusalem in Isaiah's day? Isaiah is speaking prophetically in this text. He's talking to a Jerusalem who hasn't been destroyed yet by Babylon, but he's telling them because of your sin, Babylon's going to come in and destroy you, and you're going to be carried off into exile. And then he, God is giving them a word of comfort as he speaks prophetically into the future. 
He gives them a word of comfort to the exiles and saying, listen, there's going to come a day when you are going to become fruitful. You are going to become so fruitful that there's going to be rejoicing. In fact, he says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud. You are not in labor, for the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. He's speaking of a future day, a future day when he will visit them in their reproach, visit them in their shame, visit them in their despondency and whatever you want to call it. He's going to visit them and he's going to cause them to become fruitful. And what Paul is saying is that day has arrived in Christ. That day has come in Christ. So he says in verse 28, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But what's the pattern? Well, the pattern is Hagar and Abraham have a child, but they do, th- they do so through human effort. And it's off, isn't it? It's off. It, it, it isn't what... It isn't... It isn't the promise that God has made. It doesn't fulfill the promises that God has made. There's nothing miraculous about it. But what about Isaac? What about a woman who's 90 years old, who conceives, bears a son safely, undergoes the rigors of childbirth safely to where she survives and the child survives? That can only be explained by God's hand, can it? And what's Paul saying? He's saying, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, children of promise. This becomes, I mean, first of all, let's think about this for a moment. If you're in Christ this morning, you're like Isaac in the respect that you're only there because God has touched, he has touched your heart. It's not the result of your works. It's not the result of what you've done. It's not the result of saying, okay, I think, I think God's going to do it this way, so I'm going to do this, or I think he's going to do it that way, so I'm going to do this. No, he intruded in your life. He touched your heart, and you're in. And how did you get in? You only got in on the basis of the merits of another person. You got in because of what Christ has done, and he did it long before you were ever born. In fact... He did it for you long before you were ever born, but he always had you in his heart while he was doing it. It's so fun to preach the gospel. I mean, think about that. Could he have thought of me when he was on the cross? You better believe he could have thought of you. In fact, you can take it to the bank that he did think of you. While he was on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago, you didn't escape his notice. There's no one who has a seat at the banquet table who escapes God's notice because he has provided a chair all the way around the table for each one of his children. You know, you go to a wedding that's been, you know, we've had some weddings this year. You know, you go to a wedding that's prepared for properly. There's a seat for all the guests, isn't there? There's thought beforehand that takes place. How much more so with God? There's thought about this place. Is there a seat for me? If you're in Christ, yes, there's a seat for you. The provisions have been made. How did I get here? Not because of anything you did. Oh, man. No, let's talk about what you did. You know, um, I don't want to embarrass her, but uh, Maggie and, and Doug got me a gift a short while ago. 
uh, when, we, when we organized, they very kindly, I hope I'm not embarrassing you, Maggie, I don't mean to. It's too late if I did, I'm sorry. You can, you can hit me, but it's such a wonderful gift, and I'll have you to know I use it every day, practically every day. It's a coffee cup. And on the coffee cup, it's white, and it has black letters on it, and it's a quotation from Jonathan Edwards. And it says, the only thing you contribute to your salvation, or you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm so happy to have I, this morning. I drank from that cup, man. It, almost every morning, I drink from that cup. It gets washed every day. And that's how my morning begins. And I like to look at that quote while I, I spend about 45 minutes in the Bible. Every morning is the first thing I do. And I have that cup and I have that quote. We contribute nothing to our salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. And God comes into our lives and he intrudes into our lives and he moves into our lives in such a way that we feel like we're doing everything ourselves. And we really believe we're doing everything ourselves for a while, but then we cruise along all of a sudden and we, we, we discover, wait a second, none of this really was me. None of this really was me. In fact, what made all of this possible was you, O oh Lord. Why? The only answer that we can give to that is because it was according to the counsel of his, his good and beautiful will. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Verse 29, but just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Now what is he talking about there? He's also talking about Genesis, about that same Genesis narrative, because towards the end of that narrative... There's a scene where Ishmael is said to be playing with uh, Isaac. And it's not the kind of playing that we would envision uh, being out in the sandbox. And I realize the sandbox, people might, maybe a sandbox isn't as popular. We had sandboxes. I know today you have Xboxes, but um, we had sandboxes. And I really think there'd be a great benefit to going back to the sandbox and unplugging the Xbox. I think the sandbox was really cool. Not that I think that every, not that I think that all, all ills in our culture could be fixed by returning to a previous era. I don't think that. But I think there is some wisdom in a previous era that we really desperately need in this one. The sandbox is a great place. Um, it was a great place to play. That's not the way that playing is being used in that text. Um, the words that are being used in that text could be translated making sport out of. Ishmael is making sport out of Isaac. In other words, what is Ishmael doing? He's persecuting Isaac. Sarah notices it, and she, she goes to Abraham and says, out with him, out with him. And we know that this was very painful for Abraham. And that's the problem with taking things into our own. That's the problem we always run into when we try to do this ourselves. It's, it always ends at a very painful end. And what is Abraham forced to do? God tells him, you, you've got to ask them to go. They have to go. And that's what Abraham does. And sometimes moderns will read that text and say, what kind of father just abandons um, his child like that? And what we have to keep in mind is um, that's not apples to oranges there. Abraham's doing what God told him to do. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I mean, maybe you've struggled with that story where Abraham tells us, he basically, you know, here, here's, a, you know here's a bag of water and there's the desert. Um, instead of there's the door, there's the desert. Now, we can read that and think, boy, this is really harsh. But when God, te- when God tells Abraham to do that, of course, we understand that God is going to care for their needs. They're never alone in the desert is my point. And God does meet her there, doesn't he? And he does bless Ishmael. And nations are born out of Ishmael. Uh, So we want to keep that in mind. But what is Paul saying here? Again, he's showing us a pattern, isn't he? He's showing us a pattern. And we're seeing this pattern. In verse 29, he says, But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. See the pattern is what he's saying. Do you see the pattern? Do you see what I'm talking about here? Uh, verse 30, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit but the son of the free woman. There's a distinction. There's a distinction. You know? Verse 31, so brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free. What Paul's telling the Galatians to do is to get rid of these teachers. Is what he's telling them to do. Cast these teachers out. They're leading you astray. If you want to join children of the slave woman, just keep in mind you're going to be in slavery and you're not going to inherit with children of the promise. So we're not fussing about what color the carpet's going to be here. We're fussing about whether we're going to heaven or not. That's why this is so serious, you know. But let us rejoice. If you're in Christ this morning, you are a child of a free woman. If you're not in Christ this morning, put your faith and trust in him. You know, there's no point in waiting until tomorrow. Put your faith and trust in him now. Uh, we don't know that we have tomorrow. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for this uh, glorious chapter. The way it ends is just such a high point, Father. Uh, where we see this pattern that emerges out of um, Genesis 16 through 21. It's a pattern that um, Paul has so um, masterfully applied to the situation in Galatia. And we recognize that Paul is able to do this because he writes not in and of himself, though he was um, um, one of the, probably the greatest theologian who ever lived. Uh, but he does so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that his pen uh, is divinely inspired. And Father, we thank you for the imagery that we're given here. We thank you, Father, for the pattern that we see. And Father, our hearts are filled with wonder and grace this morning as we think about um, how to be in Christ Jesus uh, really is to be a child of the promise, to be a son or daughter of the promise. In many ways, like Isaac, um, we're recipients of a miracle where we're only here because you have brought it to bear. It's humanly impossible. We thank you for that, Father. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.